brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. I'm your host this afternoon, Steve Belshreri. We have a very special guest with us today, Michelle Black. And many of you may have already uh, heard about her book that just came out. It's called Sacrifice. And we did a book review on that on the, on the website. And uh, Michelle has graciously agreed to come on the podcast with us. She's going to talk to us about her her book she's going to talk to us obviously about her husband brian who was uh killed in action in niger back in 2017 and we're going to talk all about that and and you know she'll fill us in on everything that's going on with her in the book and you know i think uh uh well before we go any further i want to welcome michelle to the podcast michelle thanks for taking the time with us this afternoon we really appreciate it Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Steve. I'm so glad to be here. Well, thank you. And, you know, um, about your book, I, I know it's it's a, a kind of a memoir be, of, of not only your life as you go into the book about, you know, your your life with your husband, you know, as you guys met and all the way through everything that happened. But I think, you know, when after I read this, you know, I think this is very important, not only from the historical fact and what your family and the other families of the SF team went through, but this is mainly to me, it's about the sacrifice of families and it shows how deep our families are impacted, not only just when somebody gets hurt or killed in action, but what you, you know, go through. And it's easy for the SF guys, you know, because we go out and, you know, we're, obsessed with the mission while we're gone and you know we're focused on that but the families back home you guys have to deal with the unknown and you're always thinking worst case scenario while the guys are gone yeah that's absolutely true so it, it's <laughs> that's that's the challenge the unknown why isn't he calling why right. you know um and you always jump to the worst conclusion so it's it's a whole different thing back home and raising the kids and waiting for the phone calls. And as you know, in SF, it'll be, you know, it could be a day or two until I hear from Brian. It might be a month. Um, he had a habit of <laughs> buying cheap phones and, and hoping, you know, he'd get away <laughs> with that on deployment. So, you know, he'd call me on um, other guys' phones occasionally. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, it, it's tough for the families. I mean, even on a, a, a training deployment, well, the guys are gone. You still have to deal with everything that's going on back home. And the kid, you have kids of your own and we'll get into all that. But, you know, raising the kids, taking care of all the household, there's things that come up. And, you know, wives have to be uh, as strong, if not stronger, in a lot of aspects than the husbands do. That's absolutely true. You know, um, I know I, I go in on the book, you know, I talk about my son Ezekiel. And so there were those issues where he has autism and I'm trying to deal with him getting, you know, 
kicked out of this sporting event or him, you know, getting kicked out of class for the day or whatever else. And then having, you know, having to learn um, what an IEP is, which is an individualized education plan and go up against the entire administration at a school and fight for him while I'm trying to raise my um, toddler. And it just, it was constant and there was no, um, downtime for me when Brian was gone at all and then taking care of the house and everything else. Yeah. In fact, uh, we were talking offline and we were comparing notes about autistic kids because my son is, is mildly autistic as well. And it is when, especially when you first start that journey, you know, you're going through so much unknown, you're trying to figure out, you know, how do I, how do I open that door just a crack? Do I get in where I'm seeing things from him? And it was funny because then now years later, my son has gone through so much therapy and he's able to, you know, talk to us more. And he was like, you know, you see things as it's like a motion picture where everything goes, you know, in a sequence. And he goes, I see things as a series of snapshots and everything stops. So I have to stop and look at that snapshot of things. And, it's it, it's amazing what those kids go through. But I know that from reading your book, your son did very, very well once he got into the therapy. He did. Yeah. And it seems like even it's been amazing because since losing Brian, Ezekiel almost stepped up into Brian's place and tried to become almost the head of the household. So, you know, there's one one instance where I talk about we're at the airport getting picking Brian's body up from RDU and Ezekiel looks over grabs my hand and looks up at me and just kind of nods his head and gives a reassuring stare and then he takes the first step forward and essentially leads me and the other two uh, or me and my other son forward um, towards the tarmac and uh, since then I feel like that's what he does he's just and he's grown and become even more um almost higher functioning. People now wouldn't guess he's autistic. He's getting straight A's in high school. He's on the swim team, on the water polo team. He's got plans for college and he wants to go into SF, of course. (laughs) 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 We can't, you know, you're talking to a bunch of SF guys here in soft rep, so we can't argue with that choice, but uh, that's, uh, that's awesome. And now how old is he now? He's got to be what about 16 now? He's 14. He'll be 15 14. this summer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But um, so, you know, uh, let's jump backwards a bit. Tell us a little bit about how you and your husband met. I thought that was a really intriguing part of the book. And, you know, your husband was, you know, he was kind of almost like a renaissance man. He was into a lot of different things and he was very successful at everything he did. Yeah, he really was. It's funny because um, I had grown up, you know, doing a lot of skiing. I was obsessed with snowboarding. So after I graduated college, I went up and thought I'm going to instruct snowboarding and just have some fun, blow off steam. And in walks this really dorky guy, you know, I mean, he clearly was a wrestler, looked like he had to have two black eyes, big, you know, thick neck. And he's wearing like a ski sweater and tight jeans. And this is a snowboarder crowd. We've all got on our saggy pants and, you know, <laughs> our fur line jackets. We were all super cool and he was not cool. And so I thought, I, you know, I got to get to know this guy. So um, he was playing online poker at the time. So complete misfit. But what was funny is 
when he'd be playing poker, he ended up moving in with some friends of ours. And I would go over there and he'd have his computer screen open and he'd up, he'd have open, you know, four um, poker tables going online. And then he'd have three or four um, chess tables open and going speed chess. And he'd go click, 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 click. And he'd walk in. And I remember one time one of his roommates go, I walked in there to ask him what he was doing. And all he responded was, I'm winning. <laughs> and like, That's it. <laughs> so, yeah, we started. Um, I just started to get to know him as a friend. He was dating a, a co-worker of mine. And um, then we started doing a lot of backpacking trips, hiking trips up through the um, eastern high Sierra along the Pacific Crest Trail. And then one day he just decided I was going to be his girlfriend and wouldn't take no for an answer because, uh, <laughs> and it kind of went from there. So, yeah. Well, that sounds like how I met my wife. Uh, she came down to visit her parents in North Carolina. Uh, they, her father was in the trucking industry and they moved him to Fayetteville and she just came down to visit them for a long weekend. And then I kind of kidnapped her and said, that, you're not going back home to New York. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 25, 30 years later, here we are still. So, but when you know, cool. you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, if she could put up with me, then she was a keeper. So, you know, <laughs> but anyway, um, so you and Brian met and you started dating and then you guys got married and you lived in California for a while before he joined the military. We did. Yeah. We were married for probably, um, I want to say three years before he decided to join. Um, and it was around 2008 when, you know, there were just the economic crisis hit and it was, you know, he'd been playing online poker for a living. So the re internet restrictions tightened up under Obama. And so all of a sudden he had pulled all his money out and um, it wasn't safe to keep it online in the banks that he needed to, in order to keep playing. Um, and then to um he'd had a business degree and he was trying to apply everywhere but because he'd been playing poker instead of working with his degree he had no experience and so he finally went listen um i've always wanted to be you know a navy seal or a green beret so would you say i joined the military then we get all this coverage and i can have a shot at this and i went why not you know um i think you know if that's what makes you happy go for it so it was, I think, 2009 when he joined. And then you guys, um, I think you, in the book you mentioned, you, was it Fort Carson that you were stationed at first before he tried out for SFAS? Yeah. So he, um, when he first went in, he went in as a medic and we got stationed at a cache in uh, Fort Carson, which, you know, Fort Carson uh, was yeah. amazing. We did a lot of skiing and hiking and whatever. But, you know, as far as his job went, I was so busy with Ezekiel and, and all of the autism and just the craziness. And he was starting to get bored at work. So he actually had more free time than I did. I think during that time, he'd come home and I'd be busy off at, you know, therapy sessions and whatnot with the kids. So he decided to go to SFAS and that kind of fast tracked us within a year and a half. He went to SFAS. Yeah, in fact, uh, I worked out there as one of the cadre members. So you went into your book when you talked about he came home and he had lost quite a bit of weight in a very short amount of time. I was like, well, things haven't changed at SFAS since <laughs> I was there. So that's a, that is a 
smoker of a course. And I tell people, uh, you know, here at SoftRip, we get emails all the time from young guys that are going through and they, they ask for, for tips and, you know, advice. And I just tell them be in the best shape you've ever dreamed of in your life. And you're still going to get smoked. You're going to lose a lot of weight. And by the time you finish, you're going to feel like you've been through the ringer. And that's, Mm -hmm. that's what that it's all about. But obviously he did real well in it. He was selected. He went to, school and then you guys moved to the wonderful town of Fayetteville. <laughs> yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, uh, you know, of all the places in North Carolina, people ask me all the time, oh, what's Fayetteville like? Fayetteville is not what I would consider North Carolina. It's just kind of there. It's a military base. It's not where I would choose to live. Mm-hmm. The rest of the state was gorgeous. I love the mountains. I love the ocean. But Fayetteville, not so much. Yeah, same here. Um, yeah, we loved going up to Asheville or, you know, out to Wrightsville. But yeah. what, part uh, of, what part of town did you guys live in? We actually lived um, up off of Ramsey. So we were in kind of a rougher area oh, over wow. near the yeah. Walmart. But they'd yeah. start, yeah, we didn't know. We, we wanted to buy a house and we found this gorgeous house in this old neighborhood. And, you know, honestly, getting into that old neighborhood, our, our um, neighbors were amazing. But, you know, you step two streets over and you don't go out at night, you know, so (laughs) live and learn, you know, next time Southern Pines. But yeah, 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 I lived way out uh, for Rayford Road at that time. It was when you get out past a certain place like Cliffdale, it was wide open. Now, I've I haven't been back there in a couple of years, but I heard that's all built up now. So, yeah, it is. (laughs) It's nice out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's much nicer than Ramsey, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely would have been a step up for us. <laughs> so anyway, um, Brian gets through SF, you know, he gets the third group. Talk to us about that time and then lead us into, you know, the events of what, what happened. Yeah. Well, you know, honestly, the time period when he, um, when we got to Fayetteville and he was going through the Q course, that was chaotic. Um, and because, like I said, I was busy with Ezekiel and, and all the all the chaos and trying to get him the therapy and, and into regular ed classrooms. And, and Brian was just gone, you know, as it goes with the Q course. Um, but then he graduated in 2015 and um, last minute joined a B team over in Afghanistan and was there for a few months, came back and was home for maybe a couple of weeks and went to ranger school. So then he was gone for another, what, three months and then um, graduated that in April of 2016. And then instantly that he got home April 1st, which was my birthday. And then I think May 15th, he was already on team 3212 and they went on their first deployment to Niger. So he wow. was gone within a month. Um, yeah. And they came back around October, I believe that year. So yeah, it was just fast, you know, really fast, but he loved it. He loved being in Niger. He'd, um, learned, he had taught himself to speak French and Hausa so he could speak with the local Nigerians. And so by the time he came home, he was really excited. You know, I, got to go speak with all the local people, speak with the village people. It was fun. Um, 
granted, he was somewhat, I think he was hoping when he got into special forces, he would have more independence and, and less paperwork and bureaucracy. And when he saw that it was still a lot of paperwork and all the bureaucracy of everything, he was, he was getting pretty frustrated. Um, and he was like, you know, I might not do this for as long as I, as I thought uh, I would. So he loved oh, the medicine part of it and he loved the independence, but the bureaucracy didn't give him as much independence as he wanted. Yeah. That's the military. I mean, if they can figure out a way to, you know, tie you down with paper, the needless paper too. And, uh, after, you know, I, I started off as an enlisted guy and after I became an officer, I never, never did paperwork. I should throw it all away. They'd send me big stacks of stuff. and I'd throw it all away. I was like, you don't need to do this. When I was an yeah. enlisted guy, I refused to do it because it was stupid. And yeah. that's the army takes, we always used to say they take all the fun out of everything. So, yeah. um, but that's, that's typical, but yeah. Uh, you know, reading the book, I got that sense that your husband loved that part of SF where, you know, you're interacting with the people you, you know, he's, taught himself a little bit of the language and what a lot of people don't realize is in Africa, they speak so many different languages. It's, it's really, really difficult. You, you can't say, Oh, well, he's fluent in everything they speak there because I don't think anybody is even people no. who live there. Aren't. Yeah. And, but, you know, even just picking one of the languages and working on it, that, that buys so much favor with the locals that it was amazing what happened when he learned Hausa, he ended up um, becoming friends with the, like one of their little local right near their base, because the first time they were, um, where were they? I think they were in Marathi. So mm -hmm. there was a village there and he would go into Marathi and became friends with village, a village chief. And so then the village chief tried to get him to marry his daughter and bring her home. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm already married in America. We don't marry more than one woman. So, you know, I'm afraid I'm going to have to decline. <laughs> and um, by the end, his village, the village chief liked him. Uh, so he decided to give him a gift, a wedding gift. And it was a traditional wedding gift for the Nigerian people. And it was um, knives. I guess they present to the couple. They each have a knife. So uh, I guess it means if one of us breaks a wedding vow, we can kill the other. So oh, we, wow. we, so I have the two um, traditional marriage knives. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. amazing. I didn't yeah, know that. Great. That's I uh, learned something new every day. So, yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, I know it's, this is the difficult part, but take us to uh, that last deployment of his. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. The The plan was he had, like I said, he'd grown tired of doing all the paperwork and, and he'd started to think, well, he'd always wanted to run his own business. He'd always wanted to be involved in stocks. He had. So after telling me kind of his complaints about it that winter after he got home from his first deployment, I said, well, if you could do anything in the world, what would it be? Oh, I would love to build a stock trading program, you know, develop one where, you know, it can um, predict the movement of stocks with some degree of you know predictability. So I said, well, why don't you just do it? So oddly enough, over the next, you know, however many months he was home, he built a stock trading algorithm. And um, he was in the initial phases, the um, beta testing, and um, he took his computer with him. And uh, he was 
deciding that spring whether he should just get out then or uh-huh. sign on for another stint and use that money from the bonus to kind of launch his program. So we decided, okay, let's take, let's sign on, take that money and use it to launch the program. And then you would only have, you know, this, this deployment um, in the fall and one more following. Um, but by the time we reached fall, he didn't say anything, but I think he was feeling the same way I would, I was, there was just a lot of, uh, like, hesitation. It just, something felt off. And I'd never really been scared when he deployed, you know, nothing had ever concerned me when he left on training or deployments. I'd never felt any unease. Um, but something just felt wrong this time and I didn't want to let him go. Um, and, you know, it was the first time where we both were like hesitating at the airport and like, okay, okay, we'll, we'll see you later. You know, this very like uncomfortable, like something's not right. And we're doing like second and third hugs and I'm almost crying. And I'm like, I just don't feel right this time. And he left. Um, and, it, and I didn't put this in the book, but a few weeks later, um, Isaac, our youngest son, looks up at me. He comes in the house after school and he goes, Dad's not coming home, is he? And I freaked out because I'd been feeling that way. Um, and so um, honestly, since he'd left, I kept daily, I would look out the window and see if there were any government cars pulling up, anyone in uniforms around. Um, and so when he said that, it really shook me. And I said, oh, no, dad's fine. Dad's totally fine. We just need to pray. So we started praying every night. Um, And then about a day or two before I got the knock, I was walking through my um, bedroom and I remember being stopped in one place. And I just felt like the spirit of God all around me, like just this heavy thing. And it was like peace. But then I felt like him saying trust me, you're going to be okay. And that it happened one other time in my life. And it was the day before my dad died. So I panicked, um, you know, yeah, trust you, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, I was, I was expecting it. Mm. And, you know, then, the, the events that transpired, you know, the team was given a mission that, honestly, and in reading the book again as well, you know, they were given a mission with a two hour window of intelligence, which they had a four hour drive. So if they had left immediately upon getting it, they still would have been late and they kind of pushed back on it. They were told to go continue with the mission. Then the concept of the operation, which was a big part of this later on, got changed twice which they had nothing to do with. We understand that, you know, when they ended up in the village of Tongo Tongo, the village chief kind of delayed them long enough. And it seemed like he was part of the ISIS plan to ambush them when they left. Um, After all this is going on now, uh, you know, what transpired, the team got ambushed Four of the team members, including your husband, were killed in action. Several were wounded, including their team leader. Um, the Army wasn't very forthcoming with details with you. And 
please take our listeners through that a little bit. Well, you know, the, um, the third, third group commander was one of the first ones to stop by our house. And he essentially told us, you know, Ms. Black, all we really know at this point is that they were on a routine patrol. Beyond that, we don't know any details. And, um, you know, as they come, we'll let you know. And that was, you know, in October, right after it happened. Um, and then pretty much from then on out, all I got was whatever came through the news. So we were waiting on the investigation. And, you know, what was coming through the news didn't make any sense. It was, you know, this has been leaked from an, an official involved in the investigation saying that, you know, Captain Parazzini and the team, they acted like a team of cowboys and went rogue going on a killer capture mission after a, you know, um, high value target. And to me, I mean, <laughs> take into account everything I just said about my husband, he wasn't going to go rogue after a high value target, risking his life and his career. Um, it just, it, none of it fit. My husband was a thinking man. He was a master of chess, spoke several languages. He was very black and white. And one thing from his years of playing poker and chess he thought several moves ahead. He always knew the odds of everything. And, you know, he just, there's, there's no way. And anyone who's in the soft community knows you don't go against orders, hide things from your, you know, higher level no, that, officials. That's only and, in, you know. Yeah. That's only in the movies. <laughs> right. Yeah. So as I'm hearing all of this, I'm just going this, none of this fits, but what I did hold out, um, I shouldn't even say hope. I mean, I expected the military to come in when we finally got our brief and say, yeah, these are just rumors. These are just, you know, news reports, ignore them. Um, this is what happened and get a very detailed timeline, you know, of the events and a very detailed explanation of the chain of command and how those command decisions were made, who made them, why, you know, and even if there had been a mistake, a major blunder. I I didn't care about punishments. I just wanted the truth. I didn't feel like anybody needed to be punished because these things happen. Mistakes happen. That's not a big deal, you know, but that's how you learn. It's when you don't admit to the mistakes and really assess those and learn from them that it becomes a problem because then you're going to continue leading men into battle and costing more lives. And that, that was the, basically the crux of the book because the team realized the mission was messed up from, from the beginning. And they frequently called back. I think it was three times. It might've been two, only two, but at least two to three times they asked to, to go back because they knew it was messed up. And then they were supposed to be the, um, the basic quick reaction force to a Halliburton unit and then that got canceled, and then they gave it to them. They had no medevac on station. They had no air support. They had no eyes in the air, no drone support. It it was just a, a totally botched mission. And the captain in, in your book, he asked several times for them to reconsider this, and then they ordered him to go forward anyway, and then they basically, as soon as everything went to hell in a handbasket, outside of that village, they threw him right under the bus. They did. To include and, the rest of the team. And there were some very specific things they like 
either misled or, you know, left out when they were briefing us, or they just outright lied. So one of the biggest lies was, you know, in our brief, we were told, you know, when they were pushed ahead to the Mali border, a second threat assessment was done before they were sent to the Mali border without Team Arlet. Um, and it showed, you know, that they were they were safe going ahead alone in an eight truck convoy, <laughs> you know, uh, the next morning. So we were told that we found out later there was never another another second a threat a threat assessment done. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, not to and have the trucks, a proper the trucks too. Um, what people don't realize is the team wasn't over there in Humvees. No. Those those Toyota Hilux trucks, and I think every SF guy who's ever deployed anywhere in the world is very familiar with Toyota Hilux trucks because they they're everywhere. But they're very underpowered. They're not very good at cross country. It's not like having a Humvee. Those things get, and you you talked about it in the book that they get stuck quite often in the desert. Yeah, they were having to be really careful not to get stuck on their way up because if they did, they would have to have the Nigerian counterparts pull them out and throw out in the middle of the no- out of you know nowhere Africa. So if they need help and the Nigerians can't pull them out, there's not much they can do. Um, and they're in the middle of enemy territory, you know, at at night. So that was one of the big things, you know, the trucks the threat assessment, but then there were, there were things that just were inaccurate when they briefed us, you know, like Captain Perizzini, you know, when they were in the kill zone, um, he decided to stop the trucks. And this, you know, this was a huge issue on the media, um, among the families, you know, he stopped in the kill zone. Why would you stop in the kill zone? They showed that and they had a, um, like a slideshow. Yeah. And because I remember watching the slideshow and um, and they showed the, the first truck stop. And the first thing that comes to mind as, as any military guy, would, why would they stop in the kill zone? Well, then it turns out in your book, did you found out that they didn't actually stop in the kill zone? And, and yeah. please explain. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because I interviewed each guy separately. So I, the first guy, it's like, I stopped him three times and I'm like, this really happened. And then the rest of the guys later told me the same story every time they came to my house. What happened was because they were in a buy with and through mission, as they left the village, the Nigerian trucks were in the lead. And so the Nigerian trucks, as the um, fire started to um, break out, they panicked. And so they put the trucks in reverse and ran into the American trucks. One crashed right into the front. And then the other one, seeing it crashed, uh, seeing them crash, tried to whip around them and in the process clipped the, the same American truck and boxed them in because there was a tree on the other side of the American truck. So the lead American vehicle was completely boxed in, which brought the entire convoy to a halt in the kill zone, which really worked out well for the, um, the enemy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was a mess. But you know, and that, that's the thing that it seemed like everyone they talked to, they discounted the people that were on the ground. Because it, it, it's clear and in your book, you talked to all the surviving members of the team. You interviewed them. Was it separately? You, you talked to each one of them? 
I did because what I didn't want to have happening is I get them all in the room and they're talking to me and then they're correcting each other. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought I want to see if they all have the exact same story when they're separate. And if so, then why would their accounts uh, be discounted by AFRICOM? Because, because the general officers who pushed that mission through were basically covering their own ass, excuse my language, but yeah, that's I'm, all. I'm sure that you've was heard the only, worse. That was the only <laughs> conclusion I could come to is, you know, somebody's being protected. And so what, what possessed you? Was it just to get to the truth? to have the team over to your house and then you you kind of broach the subject with them that you'd like to do this interview with them. Um, was it just to get to the truth? I think what started as, you know, I think it was a buildup. So, mm-hmm. you know, okay, my husband died. Okay, a video was released. There reaches a level of unjust, like injustice when your own government allows you to go through all this. And that's fine. You know, that that's what that's what this job is all about. You know, that's part of service and sacrifice. But then they lied to me. And then my last hope was, OK, they're going to go um, on TV at the media brief. And the AFRICOM commander, General Waldhauser, is going to finally be honest. You know, and he started out with, you know, I accept full responsibility for actions on the ground was one of the first things that happened that came out of his mouth. Um, (laughs) But, you know, what you say and what you do are two different things. So um, that I think it was a mix of what they were willing to do to the families to protect others higher up the chain. Mm -hmm. And what they were willing to do to the men on the ground who had, I mean, honestly, they'd been through hell. They had watched their friends die. They had been ambushed um, by these ISIS militants, barely survived. And then they come home and they're ambushed by the press, by the families, by their own um, higher ups who should be protecting them and get thrown under the bus. And I think for me, the level of injustice for them and for us. Uh, That day when General Waldhauser spoke, he said, all teams on the continent of Africa are performing optimally, but this team is not indicative of what special operators do. I remember reading that. Yeah. In one fell swoop, he managed to just completely disrespect the sacrifice and really the careers, everything, um, and dishonor my husband and every man who fought and died along with him and the families. And um, in that moment, I, I just, I, I was done. So that day I decided, uh, you know, they write books about other operations and there's always some journalist who does it, who says we can't do it, who says I can't do it. So I'm done. I'm going to find the truth and I'm going to write the book. And if the book is they were protecting someone and they lied to us, well, then perfect. More more stuff to put in the book. Did, did you have any journalistic experience prior to this? No, 
I'd never even written. <laughs> I just thought, why not? Well, you know? I'll, I'll tell you, after reading the book, it seemed like you've been a, an accomplished author because I was looking elsewhere. I was like, this can't be the first book uh, that she's written. It was quite well done. And Thank you. Yeah, it was very well done. And the research was impeccable on it. And the fact that you were able to talk to the different team members. How are their... Um, I don't know if you've kept in touch with them, but have they gotten bitter over the way they were treated by all this? No, surprisingly, no, they're all, I mean, I had one, one of the men were, he was younger and he lost his best friend and he got out because he just, he couldn't, he couldn't take it. It was, it was too, I think for him, it was really hard, but I wouldn't say that he still holds bitter feelings, you know, um, I'd say overall, everybody's doing really well. Yeah. That's good. And, you know, I, I know you live close to your your uh, husband's family and you still have close contact with them. How are they um, handling the book? And, uh, you know, I'm sure they've both read it. Um, yeah. How are your in-laws handling all this? Are you getting a lot of uh, exposure now with the media again? Um, well... I have a feeling it's going to pick up soon with the Army yeah, Times just, article that just yeah. came out and with you guys. And yeah, so I have a feeling, uh, you know, over the next few weeks, it'll really start to, I don't think anyone took me seriously before because I'd never published anything. And it's like, oh, that's nice. She's writing a little book and that's fine. You know, um, as I said, my main goal was just to set the record straight for the men and for the families. And so I've, that was, those were really my target audiences and they're the ones that I care most about. What's their opinion. And um, I've gotten really good feedback and I'm very happy with that. They, they are all very um, happy that I wrote the book and I've, yeah, I'm glad I did it. That's awesome. Uh, now the actual writing process of putting it together was that, you know, having never done it before, was it, uh, was it difficult to try to piece everything together? Um, yeah, the writing process was <laughs> much more challenging than I expected. I've always been a huge reader. So, you know, I've, you know, I've always got a book in my hand, um, even as a kid, you know, I was a kid in the car with the spotlight on my book, just reading. <laughs> but um, I was a super yeah, big dork. But um, so I thought, oh, someday maybe I'll write a book. Who knows? You know, like no big deal. I'll just jot that thing down and be done. And it'll be, you know, the book of my life. Um, <laughs> it's not that not that simple it no. was really really uh challenging um the pieces I loved writing obviously were the first sections where it talks about you know me my family my husband and and just our lives together that was probably the easiest part for me it was easy and difficult because you know I'm crying through half of it and then I'm angry through another half um and then, As you should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the harder things were just probably the most difficult thing for me because I've never been in battle um, by far was figuring out how to write the on the ground section, you know, and those poor guys, me like, does, you know, 
what would you say is this weapon and how would it sound? And they would send me video clips and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, so do yeah. the research <laughs> was really challenging because I mean, you know, I've never heard of Dishka. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think most of us have unless we've been over there fighting, you know, so things like that. Fortunately, growing up in the desert or near the desert, I knew, okay, this is what motorcycles and guns out in the desert sound and feel like. And this is what it feels like out there at night, but um, that's still not Niger, you know? So trying to figure all that out, um, doing the research and trying to put myself in a battle scenario. Has anyone from SOCOM or third group reached out to you since the book just was recently published? Um, No. Okay. But I don't think, you know, I don't think, I guess... I don't know what to think. I'm hoping that, you know, especially third group, because it was so close and personal, I think in general, they'll be very receptive, except for the individuals who specifically um, did things that were wrong. And, and, and that's the thing. I don't hold any animosity towards anybody, you know, and I, I love the special forces community. I love the, you know, everything behind the military and what it does and why they do it. And I would encourage even my sons to go and, hey, yeah, become a Green Beret, join third group. I think this is great. Um, I'm all about it. What I don't like is injustice that, you know, these men were, were forced to face over somebody's career. I mean, my husband lost his life. My children lost their dad. Um, my in-laws lost their youngest son. That's horrible. And they decided, hey, a career, you know, that is what matters here. Let's make sure to preserve this guy's career. And I'm thinking he's going to put somebody else in this same position. Right. And that's what, you know, um, um, at the time, they gave general or, or uh, officer letters of reprimand to the team leader. Um, but none of the higher ranking officers, you know, they kind of whitewashed them and general Mattis kind of put a stop to that. But, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's just, uh, when I think of that team leader, I mean, to all the members of the team, but I think of the team leader, especially because he was the one whose name was really dragged through the mud as far as I was concerned after reading your book. And I just, um, I felt really bad for him because not only did he lose a good chunk of his team, his actions were dissected, I thought, unfairly to what transpired. He was wounded himself pretty seriously. And I just think the Army did him a vast disservice. He should have been decorated for it, as far as I'm concerned. No, I I agree with you. And I know him well. He's one of the most... um, if my husband had to say such high praises about him, which my husband didn't say, he never praised anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember specifically, you know, before that deployment, he was like, this guy's incredible, incredibly intelligent, incredibly capable. I'm glad he's going to lead us. And my husband never really, he would usually end up stepping into the leadership position, you know, on in different groups because he was a natural leader and he was so intelligent. But um, he, you know, he clearly trusted Mike. And as I've gotten to know Mike, I, I can understand why he is incredibly capable and he did exactly what he should have on the ground. And um, unfortunately, 
you know, that is not how it was painted. It was painted that everything he did, he was made to look like a fumbling idiot. Mm -hmm. But um, I doubt most men in that position would have performed as well as he did. Now, is he still in SF? I know in the book you mentioned he later on he was uh, an instructor at the school, but is he still in? Yes, yes. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. You know, they should have decorated a lot of the guys on that team for what transpired. And, you know. Um, but how do you highly decorate a team that you're trying to blame? I mean, you yeah, can't, you know, exactly. have a highly decorated team that's trying to be painted as fools. <laughs> yeah, as, as uh, cowboys and uh, gone yeah. rogue. But, yeah, as soon as that storyline came out, I, I know, speaking for a lot of former SF guys, you we immediately discounted that. Uh, that that stuff doesn't happen. It only happens in the movies, you know. But yeah. if you could think of something that, you know, for the average person, maybe not even a military family member or a military type person, take away from this book, what, what do you think of that would be? Um, you know, I, I wrote something down because I thought it was important for those who, you know, weren't in the military community to hear. Let me find it. Um, well, yeah, I just that they would understand more clearly what freedom has cost those of us who, you know, all of those, you know, my husband and the families um, who've paid the ultimate price. But more importantly, that we wouldn't change it, you know, because nothing worth having comes without a steep price. And um, really, I hope that the readers walk away appreciating their freedoms more and hold more love for and pride in the men and women who serve our great nation. I think, you know, they deserve more respect. Absolutely. And, and the families do as well. I, I know you have two sons uh, that are growing up without their dad. How are they doing? And you said uh, the ones getting ready to graduate high school. And yeah. how are the kids doing? They're doing really well. Um, like I said, well, Isaac, first of all, he's Mr. Social. So he has made a million friends. We've always got a house full of teenage boys running around going crazy. Every neighbor shows up and, you know, and he's got himself a golden doodle who sleeps with him and follows him around like, you know, like, like they're brothers. And so, um, yeah, it's pretty funny. He's, he's a trip and he's doing really well. He's in uh, seventh grade right now. So, um, yeah. And he's, you know, I've been taking the boys skiing at the local mountain and, you know, they both love it and have picked it up and ski really well. So we've been going to the top of the mountain and um, trying to talk them into snowboarding next year, but we'll see. So, um, yeah. And then and you, your father-in-law was a, uh, was a military officer, right? He was, he was a Marine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now Ezekiel, is he, uh, is he a skier as well? He is. Yeah. So he's skiing. He, he agreed to let me teach him to snowboard next year. So I'm, I'm very excited because like <laughs> I said, I used to instruct, I used to compete. So I am all about the snowboarding. I'm like, if you take, you go through, you know, I want to take him through the park. I want to, you know, do all that. I mean, who knows? I might kill myself now. I haven't done it in a few years, but you know, I used to do all the big jumps and stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited about that, but he is 14 and he is, you know, swimming on the swim team, just lettered um, this yesterday. 
And then um, he's playing water polo and straight A's at school. So he's just, he's doing really well. But So we, we can look for him to be an SF guy somewhere down the road. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> That's all he wants. <laughs> there you go. I feel like I told you earlier, I can't think of a better way uh, for a kid to grow up. You get to see the world, you get to experience some things, maybe not all of them pleasant, but it shows you a lot of what's going on in the world and it makes you really appreciate, you know, the things that we do have. Yeah, that's absolutely true. They're definitely some of the most independent and strong kids I know and they care a lot for others. So it's, it's good. Well, Michelle, thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time with us this afternoon. We uh, we loved having you on and talking about it. And, and we encourage all of our readers out there, our listeners to the podcast to down, um, you know, you can check out um, Michelle's book, Sacrifice. You can download a copy of it or buy a hard, hard copy of it. Um, where can they find it? Amazon, I'm sure. Oh yeah, in pretty much anywhere bookstore uh books sell, you know, <laughs> books are sold. So, yeah. Well, we appreciate you sending us an advanced copy of that. It was it was very well written as I told you earlier, but it, at times it was also I could say it was maddening at times reading about uh, your experiences and it was hard enough for what you and the other families had to go through, not to the least of which to being lied to by the uh, chain of command. And, and again, we encourage all of our listeners to get out there and buy the book and definitely check it out. Well, thank you so much for reading it and having me on. This has been a lot of fun. It it was our pleasure. And hopefully, um, are you going to write another book eventually? Is this going to be something I mean, that... I would love to. It turns out I really like to write. That's so, awesome. Even so, on the bad days. <laughs> yeah, well, that's sometimes that's when you get the most done. That's true. <laughs> well, th- thanks again for taking the time with us. Um, we really appreciate it. And yeah, well, you, the door was always open for you here, especially if you write another book. We'll be glad to... Uh, you know, review it and have you back on for another podcast. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks again. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.